Do you ever wonder why God placed you where he has in human history? I mean, have you ever thought this thought? Like, I'm alive, and God put my soul in this being, in this body. He put you in the family that you're in. He put you in the country that you live in. He gave you your unique personality. There, there are things that you do that you know that when you do them, those didn't come from you, those came from God. And the question is, why? Have you asked yourself, why am I here? I don't mean that like in a bad situation, like when you're hanging out with your family and things aren't going well, you're thinking, why am I here? I mean, why are you in your job? Why has God placed you in your neighborhood? Why has he brought certain people around you in your life? You see, I think the question of why are we here is a question that every Christian needs to ask him or herself regularly because if we're honest, it's way too easy to sort of step into the ebb and flow of culture and forget at times that there's a divinely ordained purpose for our lives. The fact of the matter is that our sense of mission and purpose in life, if we're honest, can leak. We just sort of go along and day after day, week after week, and we can forget, why am I really here? I think this question is not only important for individuals, I think it's important for a church to ask. I mean, why is College Park in the Indianapolis area? Why are we here at 96th in town? Why are we in Fishers? Why, why has God given us favor over these last 30 years? And what does he want us to do in order to reach our city? What's our role in that regard? You see, Jesus gave us a commission, and that commission, as you heard last week from Joe Bartimus, is go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. For most of you, that's not an unfamiliar mission. But the problem is, is there's often a disconnect between that mission and how we actually live. Over the last couple of years, our elders and pastors have been talking about this mission, not just from a foreign mission standpoint or a central city mission standpoint, but what does it look like on a personal level for us to embrace the mission of evangelism and discipleship? Two years ago, we launched the Next Door Mission in order to press the envelope on that idea. The idea is, or was, let's take a group of people, and put them in closer proximity to where they live in Fishers, and in so doing, help them to be able to reach their neighbors in a more effective way, and in that process, be able to help our entire congregation, whether it's at Fishers or at, here at North Indy, to think more about what it means to go and multiply. Since we launched Fishers, it's exceeded my expectations. They're averaging now about 450 people. Their growth is up about 44% since when we launched. They've baptized 11 people and 85% of their people there are involved in small groups. So things are going incredibly well in Fishers, and my dream over the next five to seven years is to see other campuses launched in areas like Greenwood and Avon and downtown. And the reason is not just to launch campuses, it is so that we will continually think about what it means to go and multiply, what it means to be able to reach our neighbors, what it means to reach the people who live right next door to you, who just came out of their houses this weekend, or last weekend, and you realized, oh, you do still live there. 
They haven't seen you in a few months. The question we need to answer is why are we here? When I think of the mission that God has given us in the Great Commission, when I think about personal evangelism, when I think about it in my own life, you know, I think one of the greatest barriers to this mission is the matter of fear. In fact, I would suggest to you that fear is the great evangelism mission killer. I think it's the major reason why we don't seize opportunities. Just, for instance, when you think about evangelism, what are you afraid of? Some of you are immediately afraid, I'm afraid of more guilt today. I get that. When you think of sharing the gospel with a friend or a neighbor, what are you afraid of? You're afraid of being awkward? Afraid of being offensive? Afraid of um, being asked a question that you won't be able to answer? Afraid of a negative impact on the gospel? Maybe the way in which I share the gospel will mean that they'll be turned off to Christ and his church? Maybe you're afraid of messing up the presentation and the person will never understand the gospel because you blew it so badly. All of those I understand. But you know what ends up happening is those fears end up creating a barrier And the result is I think we simply fall back into a default position where we take the gospel and we go incognito. And we're really happy to have Jesus and our sins forgiven. Real happy to have an environment where we can maybe raise our family or take care of our marriages and figure out how to do all of that better. But if we're not careful, we'll begin to think that that's why the church exists for us. And the reality is the church exists for Christ and for the spread of the news about him. What I want to do today is talk about this matter of fear through the lens of Matthew chapter 10. And I want to try and help us to reshape our expectations of what it means to be a follower of Jesus as it relates to this issue of fear. Now first, a little background on Matthew 10. In Matthew 5 and 7 through 7, Jesus begins his teaching ministry in the Sermon on the Mount. And then if you were to look, you'd see chapters 8 and 9, he begins his active healing ministry. So he begins to teach, and then he begins to do. He begins to instruct, and then he begins to heal. And in Matthew chapter 10, he's going to make a shift in not just him doing that work of ministry, but now giving it to the disciples and entrusting it to them. And Matthew 10 is, in effect, Jesus setting the expectations for the disciples as to what this mission will entail. So you can think of it like the speech that a coach is going to give a team before they go out on the court, or the charge that a general is going to give his troops before they go off to battle. These are the words that Jesus is going to give his disciples as to what the mission is going to entail. In fact, look at Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35. It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. See that? He's teaching and healing. That's what Matthew 5 to 7 and Matthew 8 and 9 was all about. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, for they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So he sees what the culture is like, and it is burdensome to him. And so he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, and guess who those laborers are going to be? It's going to be them. 
Chapter 10, verse 1, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these, Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So these are the disciples, and there's, it's going to be a unique moment in biblical history, because Jesus will tell them, only go to the house of Israel. Go, don't go to the Gentiles and don't go to the Samaritans. And in Matthew 28, he's going to expand that mission and tell them to go teach, baptize. That's the primary mission. Here in Matthew chapter 10, the mission is go and proclaim and heal, raise the dead, heal lepers, and go only to the house of Israel. So the, the, the ministry of Jesus and the disciples in Matthew chapter 10 is unique in its context, but the encouragement that he gives his disciples is something that we need to hear and embrace because he sets their expectations of what their mission is going to entail. As he sends out his disciples, he gives them some assurances, some promises. What I wanna do is I wanna look at these promises. There's five, at least five, fear-conquering promises in Matthew chapter 10 and what I hope is by going over these promises that in the next week as you approach Easter, uh, th there will be more opportunity culturally to talk about spiritual things this week than probably any other week in the course of the year. And I want to encourage you, wh when those opportunities come, and I'm praying that they come in your life and in mine, and, and you face the fear of, am I going to cross the evangelistic line? And by that I mean when the conversation changes just from some normal everyday conversation and suddenly you're going to step over the line and turn it into a spiritual conversation and the fear that comes when you go to do that, that these promises will help you be able to take at least one step what it means to be a follower of Jesus and sharing the gospel. So what are these promises? The first one is this. Verses 11 to 15 shows us that the mission is not ultimately about you. Look at verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. Cast out demons you receive without paying, give without paying. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And then we come to verse 11. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, meaning who do you think is going to receive your message? and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. So that's, if the gospel is received positively, go where you think the gospel is going to be received. But notice he also says, verse 14, or verse 13 rather, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off of your feet, when you leave that house or town, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. What is he saying here? Well, he's saying at least three things. First, when you go and present the gospel, if they receive it, wonderful. But if not, take the gospel back 
with you and go somewhere else. That's what it means to retrieve the peace. The idea is this, that let your peace come on that household, I think by virtue of the gospel message, but if it's not received, then let your peace return to you, meaning take the gospel and go somewhere else. Sometimes the repetitive communication of the gospel message is not wise. Once you've given it and the person rejects it, then move on and go somewhere else and realize that there's some time that the right timing is incredibly important. The second thing is he says to shake the dust off of one's feet. This is connected to a custom that when Jews entered Palestine from another country, they would shake the dust off of their feet from a foreign land before crossing into the border. So shaking the dust off of one's feet was a symbol of moving out of a pagan nation and into the Holy Land. And so what Jesus is in effect saying is that even within the nation of Israel, even within Palestine, there are little pockets of rebellion. There are little pockets of those who are not going to receive your word. And so when you leave that house, shake the dust off of your feet, realizing that this is a place that is still in rebellion. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that by being a disciple, there are some people who are going to receive the message of the gospel, and there are also some who are not. It means that as a disciple, you're gonna enter a city, you're gonna enter a home, you'll encounter a particular person, and you should not expect that every person or every home or every city is going to be receptive. In fact, according to this text, rejection is going to be a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So disciples shouldn't at all be alarmed when they're rejected, or they shouldn't assume that they've failed because the gospel has not been received. Do you find that helpful? Because I do. Because I think one of the greatest fears that we have is that when I share the gospel, if it's not received, if this person doesn't suddenly turn from darkness to light, if they don't suddenly realize their need of a savior, that somehow I've failed. And what Jesus is reminding his disciples about is this, that the mission is not ultimately about you. In fact, he goes on and he talks about judgment in verse 15. He uses the example of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah to emphasize a very important point. Sodom and Gomorrah were judged for their notable sinfulness and immorality, and they became the ultimate example of God's decisive destruction of their rebellion. And here the disciples are told that the the cities who reject the message of the gospel will face a more significant judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because to reject the messenger is to actually reject the message of grace and repentance from God himself. Why does Jesus tell them all of this? John Calvin writes this. The chief point of Jesus' counsel is to give some relief to them meaning the disciples, for their natural sorrow and dismay whenever their teaching may be flung back upon them for fear that they might give up. In other words, there's a real and understandable discouragement that can set in when you embrace your mission, when you share the good news, and someone flat out rejects it. You could 
walk away saying, see, I'm never doing that again. And that's exactly what the enemy would want you to do. And that's exactly why Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 tells his disciples, not every place you go is going to be worthy of the gospel. Not every place is going to receive you. And when you're not received, take your peace and go somewhere else. Shake the dust off of your feet. And remember, this is not about you. This is about me and my desire to win the world. And I think that might help us in changing our expectations. It might embolden us and even not surprise us when there's some level of opposition. I think that many of us live sort of a, have a mindset as it relates to Christianity that if I've done everything right, that I'm going to be really well received and people are going to like me, they're going to like my message, they're going to thank me for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Where in the world do we get that from? Because that's not what Matthew 10 tells us. Instead, we have completely misguided expectations as to what it means to share the gospel. Now, I'm not suggesting that you make it your aim in life to take as many people off as you can in the world. I'm not suggesting you do it poorly or that you don't work hard on what it means to accurately and rightly handle the, the gospel message with people. But what I am saying is I think far too many of us are so worried about being rejected that we've closed our mouths and in effect, we have neglected the mission of what it means to be a follower of Jesus because our expectations are completely off. Last week or so, we completed the basketball season for our son Jeremiah and I ended my little stint with doing some coaching again this year, a little bit. My main role is to help guys who play in the post and learn how to do footwork and pivot. And one of the biggest things I've seen over the years trying to help young guys as they're trying to play in the post is to realize that every time you turn and go up towards the basket, you're gonna get hit. You just expect it. And so I'll run drills and put a bunch of little guys around them. I'll just smack them or take cushions and hit them all the time, hit them over and over and over and over, because I want to condition a big man that when he turns, as he goes up, he's going to get hit every single time. He's not going to get the call, because for whatever reasons, refs are generally against big guys, I'm just saying. And <laughs> so you just have to expect that you're not going to get a hit. You're going to get hit. And if you don't like it, I've said before, be a guard, right? So... <laughs> or go play golf, or what, whatever. But once you begin to change that mindset, when you begin to learn how to play through the contact, it changes how you think about the game and what happens when you get the ball. And I'm just telling you, when it comes to being a follower of Jesus, some of you have an expectation that I'm gonna go and share the gospel, and if I don't share it exactly right and I'm rejected, it means that something has gone terribly wrong. That's not what Matthew 10 says. Instead, the promise is this. This mission is not ultimately about you. So for some of us, we gotta get over ourselves. It's not about me. It's not about you liking me. It's not about what you think about me. At the end of the day, this mission is not about me. Here's the second thing. The Holy Spirit will help you to speak. Verse 16, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts, flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. That's a very clear promise. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So what is the promise here? The promise is that when the disciples face opposition, 
when they're dragged into court, when they're having to give a quick word about what they are doing and they need instant wisdom to know what to say and what not to say, Jesus not only tells them not to be shocked when this happens, but secondly, when they're put in that position, that God is first going to help them to know what to say in that moment. And secondly, the Holy Spirit, he says, will be involved in the empowerment of their words. In other words, God is going to show up and help his disciples know what to say. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Timothy 4, 16, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might fully be proclaimed and all Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Listen to me. If you wait till you have all the answers, or if you wait to know how you will respond to every question, you will never speak about the gospel. What's more, you know what you'll miss? You'll miss the beautiful opportunity to know, oh my word, I spoke and it was the Lord speaking through me. One of the reasons that I love pastoral ministry and I love preaching is because I got, I got notes I've worked hard to study this text, and then something happens in the middle of the, the message where some thought comes by the Spirit, or some moment happens in one service, and then it doesn't happen in another, or it happens in the first, but not here. And in that moment, there is just a sense of God by His Spirit is doing something, and it's not an out-of-body experience, but it's close. And I covet that for some of you to sit across the table in a lunch meeting and be able to explain the gospel and know and be able to tell someone later, I don't know, it's just crazy, I'm talking, it's like I'm not, it's not me, it's my mouth, it's my mind, but it's like the Holy Spirit is the one who's giving me exact words to say, or that person who says to you, maybe later, you know what, I was hearing you, and it was like, I was, wasn't just hearing you, it was like God himself was speaking right to me, and that's exactly what was happening. And some of you, you have no idea what I'm talking about. And I feel bad for you. I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to covet that sort of risky environment where you're going there with the gospel and you know, Lord, you gotta help me right now because I'm gonna say something and I don't know what to say and you trust the Lord and see the Spirit of God work in, in and through you. Here's the problem though. If you never take the risk, you miss out on the beauty of seeing God at work. The Spirit of God will speak through you. Number three, the next promise is that you are being treated like Jesus. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child, children will rise against parents and have them put to death. This is terrible. Like, the gospel is going to affect even the most foundational relationships in life, in the family. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying... You are going to be identified with me, and how they treated me is how they're going to treat you. So here's the bottom line question. The question is this, is Jesus worth being mistreated? Or, let me be frank, did you just sign up for Christianity because you wanted your sins forgiven and didn't want to go to hell? And then you went covert. Nobody knows you're a Christian. If nobody around you knows that you're a Christian, if, if I went to your workplace and I, and I said to someone, hey, introduce me to the Christians around here, and, and they couldn't name you, that's a problem. That's a really, really big problem. If your neighbors don't know that you're a follower of Jesus, that's a problem because the gospel was not meant to be hidden. It's not about you and just about your need for forgiveness. Oh, it's about that at its core, but then it's meant to be a message that's proclaimed where people stand on the... In the public square, they sit across the table and say, I'm a follower of Jesus. So to be a disciple means that your primary allegiance in life has shifted. Living on mission springs from a life that is in love with Jesus. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. You see... Maybe part of the problem with evangelism for you is that you're simply not enamored with Jesus. I mean, because you talk about the stuff that you're excited about, right? I mean, some of you came here and you're just so excited about how your bracket's doing. And you're telling everybody, man, I'm killing my bracket. Or you're so excited, IU beat Kentucky yesterday. Finally, you know, and you're just so excited about this. And, and see, some of you are clapping right now, you can't even resist it, right? <laughs> All I gotta do is say that they won, and you're like. <laughs> but I start talking about evangelism, and you're like. <laughs> Look, we talk about what we're excited about. You see a Facebook video about cats, and you're showing all your friends. Look at this. Watch this thing. This is really cool. You find gas for 75 cents somewhere, you're telling everybody about it. Some of us may just be a, need to be honest today that we're just not that excited about Jesus. What do you do? You know what you do? You tell the Lord, I'm sorry. And you start rehearsing the gospel. You start singing about the gospel. You start talking to other people around you who are believers about the gospel. You begin to fan into flame your love of the gospel. You spend time Monday morning praying about the gospel so when you walk into work, you think about work and the gospel. You think about lunch and the gospel. You think about school and the gospel because this gospel has changed you and as a result, you love Jesus and if you're treated like him, you love it. Why? Because you love Jesus more than being treated fairly. You are being treated like Jesus. Here's the fourth promise. It's a wonderful one, that God cares for you and will be the final judge. 
He gets it straight on in verse 26, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, which means this, look, God sees it all, and there's not a single thing that's happening that's gonna be quiet at the end of the day. God's gonna, he's gonna judge it all. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. What's he saying there? He's saying, go public. Talk about me, go public. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. When you're afraid, ask yourself, what's the worst they could do? There, there's, I can't imagine there's anybody today who's hearing this message who has a real fear that someone's going to kill you because you're a follower of Jesus. There are many people around the world who have that fear. I don't believe we do. So the question is this, so what are you afraid of? Even if they could and did kill you, even that just translates you quicker to meet Jesus. See, the reason why there's so many promises in the Bible that God's for you and not against you, why he works all things together for your good, is not just to make you somehow happy in this lifetime. It is so that you will be a courageous Christian and follow Jesus even into risky parts of the world or have risky conversations because at the end of the day, what's the worst that they can do? They just promote you into glory. Verse 29, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall on the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore you are more value than many sparrows. God's assuring these disciples that God loves them. He's gonna take care of them. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. These are, are these not hard words? I mean, Jesus is laying it on the disciples. Remember, he's getting ready to send them out. Can you imagine hearing these words? This is, these are heavy words. And somehow Jesus knows they need to hear them to remember what realm they are living for. You see, being assured about God's care and being assured about final judgment should motivate us to live on mission. A few weeks from now, we'll begin talking about the subject of heaven. And part of the reason why I want to talk about this matter of heaven is because there is a clear connection that what heaven is like affects how we live right now, and not just at funerals. It means that we are living for another kingdom, and we're giving to another kingdom, and we're preaching about another kingdom, and we have a king who's in another kingdom, and what we have to be reminded that this world that we're living in is not the essence of what we really live for. And everything in the world and the culture says, this is life, now, get it now, get it fast, grab everything you can get, and just go incognito, go quiet, just kind of get along and move along and don't make any waves, and the reality is the gospel comes in and it's designed to upset all of that, but in order for that to be real, you gotta believe in who Jesus is, and you gotta believe in the reality of this mission and believe that God cares for you, and he's the one who's gonna make it all right in the end. Fifth and final promise, in losing your life, you find it. Verse 34, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus is not talking about a holy war here. What he's saying is that the gospel creates a division. 
I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So Jesus is saying that following Jesus means that a person's affections for him are greater than all other earthly relationships. And then he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Notice that, not, 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 not. Jesus talks to his disciples. He's going to send them out in the world, and he tells them all of these heavy things. And then he says in verse 39, whoever finds his life loses it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is the upside-down logic of Jesus. You know what that means? That means if you go through life and you just kind of go incognito about your relationship with Jesus, oh, you'll gain a whole lot of affirmation from people. People at work will think you're great. You're a Christian and yet you never say anything about it. I like Christians like that. And the reality is you'll gain a bunch and you'll lose a lot. The promise in verse 39 is powerful. Whoever loses his life will find it. So when it comes to evangelism, what are you afraid of losing? You afraid of losing the respect of those you work with? You afraid of losing the comforts of a, a friendly neighborhood? You afraid of being rejected? You afraid of not having the right words to say? You afraid of being treated differently? When it comes to talking about the gospel, really, what, what are you afraid of? And for that matter, what did you really expect the Christian life to be like? This, Matthew 10 was extremely convicting to me. It, it's just like a wake-up call. Like, if I'm going to send guys out to go on a mission, I'm probably not going to, like, discourage them before they go. And Jesus doesn't seek to just discourage them, but he wants them to understand what their mission is going to entail. You see, if there is a reasonable expectation that evangelism is going to be a bit challenging, and if there's a reasonable expectation that not everyone is necessarily going to be receptive, I think that can be liberating. I think it can be empowering. Because your perspective changes. A week or so ago, we were away, and we were down in Missouri. It was a basketball tournament that we were at, and Sarah and Savannah and I had some free time, so we went on a hike. And um, I'm still trying to figure out how to um, parent a little girl versus boys. It's just a little different. Um, and we're hiking, and Savannah just totally wiped out. Like, she was running and flipping just full face poof, in the dirt, right? And I, oh, here we go. This, in my mind, I'm thinking... Tears, you know, all this stuff. Probably the hike's over, et cetera, et cetera. She got up, rubbed her knee, and I said, you okay? She said, oh, yeah, Dad, it's good. Getting hurt's part of the fun with a hike. <laughs> I was like, yes! Yes! Getting hurt is part of the fun with a hike. This perspective I love. The reality is, what's your perspective on what it means to follow Jesus? Share the gospel? Someone doesn't receive it? Can you have a mentality of saying, you know, getting rejected is, I don't want to say it's part of the fun, 
but getting rejected is part of what it means to be a disciple. How'd your gospel presentation go? Mm, not well. Yeah, they didn't receive it. We ought to say, great. Let's pray, but let's not assume that because it was rejected that somehow it failed. How do you know that that person that you just shared the gospel with, how do you not know that on the sixth time they're going to receive Christ, you just happen to be number five? So why has God placed you in your neighborhood? Why has he put you in the job that you're in? Why does he have you walk in shopping at Kroger and you run into this person? What if that one person is just waiting to hear the gospel? Or what if, what if you're just the sixth person of six who are going to share the gospel with this person who so desperately needs it? My challenge to you today is simple. Over the next two weeks, particularly today, as you think about the next week, I want you to ask the Lord to give you a gospel opportunity. And I want you to pray that when it comes, you'll conquer your fear and you'll speak on behalf of Jesus. I want you to have the boldness to be able to say, Lord, help me when I'm afraid that I'll trust you. And I want to pray over us that God would provide all kinds of opportunities and when we are afraid we'll remember the promises of Matthew 10 and we'll remember that part of what being a follower of Jesus means is that we've been sent out into the world with a mission a mission that's about him a mission that the spirit will help us speak into a mission that means we're treated like Jesus, a mission that God promises he's going to care for us, and a mission that is upside down, that in losing your life, you actually gain it. Why are you here? That's the question we all need to think about. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us opportunities in the next seven days that are, un, that are unprecedented. I ask you to help us when fear comes to conquer them by virtue of the hopeful promises of Matthew 10. For hearts today that are not very excited about the gospel would be described as cold. I pray that you would warm us to the beauty of what you have done for us, Jesus. Give us courage. Give us a vision of what it means to be your disciples in the world. And God, grant us comfort and hope when things don't turn out exactly as we had expected. So now, Lord, help us as we are sent out into the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.